Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer, Anthony Calandra. Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Welcome to it. So, without further ado, we're going to get right into this. We've had a huge week with first with Judge Bum and then with the Supreme Court speaking to the Second Circuit, which an alert just came out now, which I'm going to hit Dan with in a minute. And then the next thing that happened is uh, Dan went before Judge Karen Williams. So without further ado, the Honorable Daniel Schmutter from Hartman Winnicky Law Firm to a attorney extraordinaire. And so many people got to witness and read the court documents. Dan tell us what's going on baby wait something happened <laughs> i love it right off the facebook pages something happened oh yeah <laughs> yes. uh, hey Dan- guys it's, it's good to be with you guys boy it's been it's been some couple of weeks i can imagine holy um, moly uh, yeah, it's been it's been a pretty busy busy couple of weeks, uh, especially so, in the last four days. So, Dan, before you get into it, I just got an alert: the Antioch versus Negrilli Second Circuit says the four cases challenging New York's gun laws will be heard on March thirtieth. Oh, okay. So you know, I mm-hmm. want you to know that I just got an alert. Okay. Okay, interesting. Right. So, Dan, tell us, uh, you had a, a trying week because you had all of this stuff going on, and then your daughter had an accident at a swim thing, right? Yes, yes. And she uh, got a concussion, thanks. and you were at the hospital. Yes, yes. Uh, but, I, but I brought my laptop with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, it, there's a lot going on. Yeah, we were at the emergency room. Um, at the same time, we were uh, preparing uh, uh, supplemental briefs to file with, uh, with the court. So uh, it was pretty busy. There was a lot but she's on. fine now. She, she's recovering. Thank you for okay. asking. God, she, yeah, she's bless. recovering. Great. All right. So Thursday, you go down to Camden, and there was a lot of uh, Second Amendment advocates down there, you know, in the peanut gallery in the back, like Kurt Lundy and Brad Hendricks and Hendrick and all of these guys. I want to give them all a great shout out. And Michael Glenn, all of these new 2A activists that we have helping us out here. So tell us, uh, tell us what you were going for, what happened, what's next. And then um, uh, this is basically your show for an hour. We're insignificant right now. You're the rock star. So, so as you know, and because I know you've been following this very closely, um, the there are two cases uh, challenging the what's been referred to as the carry killer law. Um, it's a forty seven sixty nine, also referred to as Chapter one thirty one. Um, there is Coons versus Reynolds, um, and there is um, Siegel versus Platkin, um, and they were filed at the same time. Um, the Coons case, Siegel is our case. Um, Coons is the uh, Second Amendment Foundation, FPC, uh, CNJFO case. Um, the, the Coons case ended up with an earlier hearing date. So uh, we got a hearing date of July 9th, of, of January 9th. They got a hearing date of, uh, January 5th. And so they went in for a hearing on the 5th. And we were we were scheduled to be heard on Monday the 9th and I want to say 30 minutes 20 minutes before we were about to go on the record 
the judge in the Coons case, Judge Renee Bum, issued a 60-page opinion granting a temporary restraining order, or TRO, um, as to all of the relief that the plaintiffs in the Coons case were requesting, which was restraints on five of the restrictions set forth in the new law. Um, now, as you know, our case is broader. We're seeking uh, an injunction as to uh, much more than those five uh, provisions. We're also seeking uh, an injunction and declaratory judgment as to uh, some of the uh, new permitting rules, including fees, including some of the new standards uh, and the new procedures um, and the uh, the insurance requirement that comes into effect in July. Um, and so when we got on the record uh, at 10 o'clock on Monday, uh, our judge, Judge Williams, basically said to us, look, uh, I got to read this opinion. Uh, you know, this is a very substantial opinion uh, dealing with, you know, similar subject matter. So I've got to look at this. And so I can't hear you today. Um, so, of course, you know, when it comes to uh, uh, the uh, the uh, infringement of constitutional rights, I mean, you know, we want to get, we need to get relief quickly. Uh, we need to get into court quickly. We need to get um, uh, injunctive relief quickly. And so, of course, we didn't want to be you know, significantly delayed, so I had to ask, you know, how, how, could we get back in there really fast? I mean, we really needed to get in there. So she said, okay, come back Thursday, and then she asked us for supplemental briefing on how Judge yes. Bum's opinion um, would impact not just our application for a temporary restraining order, but also the state had moved to consolidate the two cases. So uh, our judge wanted to know how this opinion might affect the, uh, the motion to consolidate. So, um, now, as it turns out, so the, the state had moved to consolidate uh, uh, the two cases almost immediately. Uh, they moved on, the, on uh, December 23rd, the day after the two cases were commenced. Well, so we, had, we, had, we and the Coons plaintiffs had originally opposed consolidation. We thought that the uh, basis for consolidation was uh, was really not, not proper. We thought that it would uh, interfere with the proper administration of the cases, and we thought that uh, really the, the, the rule was not satisfied in terms of what, what's required to consolidate cases. Um, well, uh, Judge Baum's opinion on Monday changed everything because suddenly um, mm -hmm. the prospect of having to redo multiple things uh, was upon us because uh, judge Baum had spent 60 pages analyzing the second amendment issues um and our judge hadn't done hadn't done that yet and so if the cases now bear in mind because this is this is sort of the interesting thing about what actually went down yesterday um on thursday rather um the uh the normally the way the rule works is that and this is this is uh, kind of this is just sort of procedural you know stuff in the in the federal rules, but the federal rule of civil procedure 42 uh, simply talks about what is what it takes for consolidation, what's involved in consolidation, what the criteria are. But it doesn't talk about procedure. It doesn't tell you how it actually happens. The procedure is local. Um, you know, there's there's rule. There are rules that govern all the federal courts, and then each court has its each district court has its own set of local rules, and so it's up to the local rules to determine what the procedure is. And what the local rule says in the District of New Jersey, it says you you make this motion if you want to consolidate cases, you file a motion with the judge who has the earlier docket number, and that was us. We had we have mm -hmm. consecutive docket numbers. Our docket number <laughs> is seventy four sixty three. 
and the committee's docket number is 7464. So just as a matter of the way the rule works, you file it, you fi they, filed it they filed the motion with our judge. Fine. Now, what's interesting is that typically, not typically, always, the way it works is that if consolidation is granted, the second case gets consolidated into the first case, meaning yep. what they were asking for was that the Coons case with the that was in front of uh, Judge Bum, who had already rendered a very, very good 60-page opinion on the issue, that case would have been taken away from Judge Bum and consolidated into our case. Okay. Um, and, so, uh, and so what we realized was that that the prospect of that happening created all kinds of major, major procedural and substantive problems. Because in the, on the one hand, in the Coons case, you had a judge that had already decided a huge motion, had already decided, essentially decided the merits of the case, even though it's only temporary, the analysis and the findings were absolutely essential. And the 60-page opinion, so much work had already gone into making that decision. If, the, if that case then gets taken away from that judge and gets consolidated into our case, our judge is going to have to redo all of that uh, because the next step is the preliminary injunction. And so this judge, not having looked at this at all yet, would have had to do a whole brand new analysis after Judge, judge Bum had done 60 pages worth of writing, would have had to redo it entirely. Similarly, the judge would have had to do the, a, a similar analysis for our motion, all from scratch even though Judge Bob had already done the analysis and had already written 60 pages on it. So what, what we realized was that what made total sense, and, and this crystallized for us immediately, is that the consolidation really should go in the other direction. The, our case should be consolidated into Judge Bob's case, the Coons case, because so much of the work had already been done. It made no sense to take the case away from, to take the Coons case away from her and give it to our judge and start from scratch. So all of the values, all of the uh, concerns that, that Federal Rule 42 cares about, things like judicial economy, things like efficiency, redundancy, the risk of inconsistent rulings, fairness to the litigants, all of that cried out for consolidating in the other direction. The problem is it's never done that way. It's never done that way. I've never seen it. I've never heard of it. And so we decided to do the research to see if it was even allowed. Well, it turns out there are, there, there are no cases. There's no law. There's no statute. There's no rule that says it can't go the other way. And so when we filed our supplemental, our first supplemental brief on Tuesday, we took the position that consolidation should take place in the other direction. Our case should be consolidated into Coons, something literally unprecedented. You can't find any law that says that that's ever happened or that it's that that, it's, that it even can happen but there's nothing that says it can happen and so we decided so we decided we went real hard on consolidation in the other direction and it was very interesting we were really wondering how the state would respond to that because if you think about it this way if this if the state's interest were truly efficiency right because the, their argument on consolidation was basically you know it's two cases uh, they share all these same issues we shouldn't have to brief them twice uh, we shouldn't run the risk of having different inconsistent decisions by two different judges you know all the different reasons that you argue to consolidate a case well if that really was their concern they shouldn't care which judge they end up in front of 
they should have been indifferent between consolidation into our case or consolidation into the other case. Because all of the things that they said they cared about, uh, the risk of in inconsistent uh, decisions, the risk, the, the, the cost, the inefficiency, all of those things would have been satisfied by consolidation into either case. They should not have cared which direction the consolidation went. And therefore, they should not have opposed our proposal to consolidate into Coons. Well, of course, they opposed our proposal to consolidate into Coons, which absolutely revealed their true motivation. Um, and so, you know, we, and we said this to the judge. We said, you know, they really shouldn't care which way, which direction the consolidation goes, but they obviously care because they want to pick their judge, which is completely improper. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I described this at an oral argument. I said, you know, they really stepped in quicksand because they kind of boxed themselves into a corner here. They, there was really no way out of the position they took. And it was, and, and, and you know, the way the, the way the two cases had played out over the last few weeks, and, you know, there's no, there's no way to predict what's going to happen. Each case proceeds based upon how the judge schedules it. You know, what, what does the judge have time to hear you? What happens? You know, all, all this stuff it happens however it unfolds, you know. Um, and much of it is out of our control. You know, we, we asked for, uh, uh, we actually asked for a hearing the, the previous week. We actually asked for a hearing on the 4th, 5th, or 6th. We got a hearing on the 9th. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, you know. But, um, but as things unfold, you have to adapt to what's happening. You have to see the parts as they move, and you have to understand how they relate to each other. And then you have to then you have to make decisions uh, as to what makes the most sense. And the attorney general's office didn't they didn't adapt because they didn't. And again, you have to watch this stuff unfolding. But the moment Judge Bum released her opinion, it it became pretty obvious what was what should happen. And you know, based upon the uh, based upon um, the hearing yesterday, you know, of course. We're listening very carefully to the judge's words as, as she's um, saying things, asking questions, ruling. It seemed pretty clear to her, uh, from listening to her, that she pretty quickly understood that consolidating into Judge into Judge Bum's case made made all the sense in the world. Because really, consolidating into our case would have made things worse. Uh, you know, because because of what I explained, that, that it would have been lots and lots of redundancy. I mean, basically four times the amount of work. Because not only would she have had to had to decide our TRO application from scratch and repeat all the kind, all the work that Judge Bum did, but then she would have had to repeat all that same work for the Coons plaintiffs who had already mm -hmm. had their their issues decided by Judge Bum. So it became it just became incredibly compelling what the right result was, and so really what what was required was us briefing the issue and explaining to Judge Williams that it was. Uh, that, that she was allowed to do that because this is not something that ever happens. And so, you know, what, I like to sort of tell people when, I, when I'm talking to young lawyers and sort of uh, mentoring them and training them how you how you get relief from a court. And there are really two critical things you have to do. You have to first convince the judge that that she should want to give you the relief that you're asking for, but that's not enough. You also have to show the judge that she can give you the relief that you're asking for because they could want to rule for you all they want but if the, if it doesn't appear that they have the authority to do it they can't do it another way around as well um if they, just because they can do it doesn't mean they should want to do it so you got to do both of those things so so the 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 why it should go 
in the direction of Coons was really apparent from the record. So we showed the judge that actually she could do it. There was no law, there was nothing preventing it. Even though, you know, nobody's ever seen it before, it doesn't work that way. Uh, because, you know, all the cases we found, we did the research, we found all these cases, they all consolidate into the earlier docket number, but not a single one of those cases said it has to go that way. They just do it. And when the, when the Attorney General filed their brief on Wednesday, they cited a whole string of cases. These are all the same cases we read. We read the same cases as they did. None of them said you have to do it that way. They just did it that way because that's the way everybody does it. So once mm-hmm. we realized that, we, we pointed out to Judge Williams, there's nothing stopping you from consolidating into Coons. The rule says the judge in the earlier docket makes the decision, but there's nothing that says it has to go into that case. It can come out of that case and go into the other case. And that's what we argued, and that's what the judge did. So you were happy with this decision, but the state wasn't happy with this decision. No, I'm sure they're very unhappy. I mean, you know, they, they, uh, uh, I'm sure, I have no doubt that they were hoping as much as they possibly could that they could get away from Judge Bob. You know, they, but, lo- they but lost even the Williams, decision. Go ahead. But even though Williams has only been on the appellate bench a year and she's a Biden appointee, she has been a judge for over almost 20 years. And she did say something interesting. She said to Angela Kai, she said, the Supreme Court has spoken. So on some level, sometimes, you know, I will say, wow, we wish this was clear, but not this case here, though, is it? She basically told her that you can't really pussyfoot around this decision. Am I correct? Yeah, that, that, that was actually very telling. I was actually very glad to hear that. Um, because one of the one of the big themes that we have advanced in our case, and we talked about it in oral argument yesterday extensively, um, is the, the overall theme of Bruin. The overall theme of Bruin is that individuals have a fundamental right to carry handguns for self-defense when they leave their home and go about their day. And what this law does is it does the exact opposite of that. It fundamentally interferes with the ability to carry a handgun outside your home. It makes it impossible. And, you know, what I said to, what I said to the judge was, I said, look, Bruin makes it very clear. When you walk out your front door, you are allowed to be armed. You have a right to be armed as you get into your car, as you go out and drive to work or wherever you're going. That is your fundamental right. And the very first thing the law does is it makes you disarm when you open the door of your car. The very first thing you have to do is disarm. As soon as you walk out the front door and you approach your car, you have to disarm immediately. It's the exact opposite. And we wanted to make sure that the court understood that, 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 you know, that important, that critical conflict between the, the whole point of Bruin and, what this, and the whole point of what this law is doing. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I, we talked about this, you know, back when Bruin uh, first came out, you know, we, we talked about this on the show, and, and I talked about it in other contexts as well, in contexts as well. The court... In the Bruin opinion, Justice Thomas, he he basically he covered all the bases he could possibly cover, or possibly think of. You know, it had been so many years since McDon- the McDonald case that the lower courts were just ignoring the the critical and fundamental nature of the right to keep bear arms, um, and the lower courts were just refusing to recognize and appreciate the nature of the right. And so, you know, after all these years and intermi- of... intermediate scrutiny, too, right? 
yeah, it's the intermediate scrutiny, which upholds every law. It's the it's the it's the interest balancing, which upholds every law. You know, the moment you get to this interest balancing and this intermediate scrutiny stuff, you know, the law is going to be upheld, and and that was happening over and over and over and over again. And clearly, the Supreme Court got tired of it, and so the opinion in Bruin it it, it goes into excruciating detail to send the message have to follow this you have to take the second amendment seriously you have to follow the constitution stop already right and so uh, and and we have and we have said i loved reading it because of that i mean he went you know he went to into all kinds of detail he gave all kinds of examples he tried to button up every hole he drops footnote yeah. nine which talks about uh how um you know even though permis- permitting systems are are not necessarily objectionable permitting systems can be abusive to the extent that they interfere with the ability to to exercise the right to keep bear arms so i mean he went he went to every nook and cranny to try to button up all the holes and try to try to make sure that there were no loopholes now look nobody's perfect but he did an extraordinary job of trying to you know sort of cut off all those areas of abuse and so the 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 bruin opinion ends up being incredibly clear the message is absolutely unmistakable and so we've been seeing uh, we've been seeing most courts recognizing the seriousness of it, and most courts that are, are faced with these challenges now post-Bruin are taken seriously and are applying Bruin in the correct way. Not all, but, but a, a much larger percentage than we saw pre-Bruin, which is exactly one of the important things Bruin was supposed to do. So when you hear, and so that, that, was, that was the message we were trying to convey to the court you know, uh, over, over the last two weeks, and, and particularly yesterday. So when you hear the judge say that, it's very gratifying. She did seem to understand that critical aspect of it. When, yep. when the judge says the Supreme Court has spoken, yes, the, she she understands the clear message from the court. That was very, very good to hear. But, because but we Dan didn't know what Assem- she was going to do at that point, you know. But Assemblyman Joe Danielson, who sponsored this bill, he wrote, quote, I feel very confident that this bill is navigating within the boundaries of constitutional guidelines and decisions. I am 100,000% confident this bill is constitutionally defendable. Joe Danielson, 11-21-2022. How do you feel about that statement? Oh, it's a complete load of horse hockey. <laughs> Hi, that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> well, what's interesting, well, well, what's interesting is that actually, that actually came back to bite them. Yep, in the Coons in the Coons decision, because in the Coons uh, TRO, because uh, Judge Bum said to the state, said, you know, the legislature keeps talking about how they know that it's constitutional and they have all the backup for it and they're confident. Where is that stuff? Why isn't it in the record? Mm-hmm. And and the, and the state really was in a, in a tough position because the state introduced. Um, uh, really, a very, very limited number of historical examples. The problem, look, the problem the state of New Jersey has is the, the history does not help them. The history is not on their side, um, and so they kind of have to make it up. You know, one of the things that they've been doing in both cases is they've been creating these artificial aggregate uh, categories of uh, of so-called historical tradition because they don't have the numbers. They have one statue here. One statute there, two statutes there. Bruin is very clear. That doesn't work. That's not a tradition. A tradition is widespread, longstanding. You know, one outlier, and and again, the court is absolutely explicit about this. One outlier, two outliers, three outliers doesn't work. That's not a tradition. 
Like Texas. But that's Texas or Kansas here or, you know, yep. uh, Tennessee had – and set aside the fact that some of, them, some of these statutes don't say what the state says they do. And, in fact, in, in at least one instance, they actually left out critical words from the statute that showed that it was not an applicable uh, uh, example. They actually omitted minor detail. Minor detail. Um, so, so set aside the fact that these statutes actually don't say what they say. They say, you know, a couple of them. When you know, when they were talking about, um, uh, um, I think it was vehicle carry, uh, or was it uh, a private property? I forget which. I think it was the private property examples. They specifically exclude pistols. They apply only to rifles and shotguns, um, and yet they want to use those as, as examples to justify a prohibition of the possession of handguns for self-defense. It's absurd. So, so, but set aside the fact that their examples in most instances were not actually good examples, they never had more than one or two in any of the categories uh, with respect to the provisions that they were trying to defend. So what they were doing was they were creating these artificial aggregation groups. So they, 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 had, they had one well, where, crowds, where crowds gather. Well, aside, set aside from the fact that set aside the fact that in Bruin the court explicitly said crowds are not a valid criteria, right? Being yep. crowded is not a valid basis to do this. But nevertheless, the state of New Jersey says where crowds gather. And but what they're so what they're doing is if they by saying crowds they get to pull from every possible corner of society. Why? Because New Jersey's a crowded place. Everywhere. You New said Jersey's that crowded, most you know. densely populated state. You said that. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, so, I read all so, seventy-two pages ten times today. So all they have, right? So if they can create these fake categories to aggregate, they can so, at least try to solve their numerosity problem because they can. The, the history isn't there. There are, and, and the Supreme Court look. The Supreme Court looked at all this stuff in Bruin. The Supreme Court said in Bruin there are not a lot of examples of these kinds of prohibitions. You know, so so while while states can attempt to show the history and the tradition, they're really not going to be able to. And, and they were stuck. They, they, they had to try to create these fake categories. But that doesn't work. I mean, one, one, one of the categories in their brief is government and constitutional activities. What does one thing have to do with the other? Mm. I mean, but, but again, they don't have any other alternative. They have nowhere to go with this. They do not have the historical tradition. And they never will. So when, when, the, when Judge Baum turns to the state and says, you know, where's the where's the the stuff that the legislature said that they had because if the legislature said if, if at the time the legislature passed the, the the law they said they were convinced that it was constitutional they surely had to have something in front of them that they were looking at where's that stuff and of course the answer that this answer the state gave was well you know we, we don't know what they were looking at well why not right i mean if the if the legislature thought that there was a constitutional basis for it why isn't why why isn't the attorney general who's defending the statute talking to the legislature and saying, okay, show us what you were relying on when you passed the statute? Because surely you had a reason to believe this was constitutional when you <laughs> voted for it. What were you looking at, right? How are they not talking to each other? Now, on the other hand, some of the people said, well, the attorney general has assured us that it's constitutional. Okay, that's fine. If that's the case, the attorney general's office had to have all those citations at their fingertips, where is it? And that was the Judge Bum really wanted to know. 
And the state did not have a good answer for that. You know, and so this was part of the reason why we argued to Judge Williams in connection with our our our, our, uh, our position on consolidating into the Coons case. We said, you know, one of the reasons why we're pretty convinced that the efficiencies favor consolidating into Coons is because we don't see any reason, any good reason that Judge Bum's decision would change between the temporary restraining order, which is the very first part of the process, and the preliminary injunction, which is going to come up in a few weeks or, or, or however many weeks it's going to come up. Because well, you the law is not going to change. Right? I'm sorry? You file for preliminary injunction today, right? For our case. Is that what no, you file no, for we, today? We, we asked for our TRO to be heard because don't forget, our TRO still has not been decided. Everything Correct. in our case has now been sent over to Judge Bum. So we really need Judge Bum to you know, hear us as soon as she possibly can. You know, schedules are schedules, but we've made the request. We, we said, you know, please hear us as soon as we've been delayed. We were originally going to be heard on the 9th. Then we were heard on the 12th. We, we need a TRO. So we've asked her to really get us in as soon as she possibly can. But in the Coons case, they're, they're, they're on to the next stage, which is the preliminary injunction. So what we said to Judge Williams is, look, we don't have any reason to believe that the decision is going to change in Coons between the TRO and the preliminary injunction because the, the state has basically said what they're going to say. say all, of their, all of their historical citations are already in the record. They're not going to come up with new ones. If they if there were other ones, they would have they would have put them in the record already. So there isn't anything else. So what's going to change between the TRO and the preliminary injunction? Nothing, and that again was a reason why it didn't make sense to pull Coons away from Judge Baum, so that Judge Williams would have to start from scratch again. That made no sense. And again, Dan, Judge Williams understood this completely. I mean, she saw it right away, and that's why I she love it. She ruled as well. I liked her. I liked how objective she was. Everybody thought because she was a Biden appointee, it was going to go the other way and she was going to twist you around. And I liked how objective. But can you tell everybody um, what the importance is of 1791, please? Because that seems to come up a lot. And it's a big question I get all the time. So that's actually really important. It's a really important um, issue. See, so I'm smart. Uh, we, 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 you have to start with the idea and the understanding that the the method of constitutional interpretation that is currently the leading method, it's currently the method that the majority of the Supreme Court uses, is called originalism. And originalism, and there's a couple of different flavors of originalism, but the leading type of religion is originalism that is that is embraced in the courts particularly in the Supreme Court is called original public meaning and that means that if you want to interpret and understand the meaning of a constitutional provision what you need to figure out is the original public meaning of that provision at the time it was adopted why because the Constitution was written to govern the people at the time and written for the people to understand. Therefore, the language used would have been language that the people living at the time would have known what it meant. Okay? So if you need to, if you're trying to figure out what does the provision mean, what does the Second Amendment mean or the First Amendment or the, any, any of the provisions in the Constitution, and you want to understand the words, you have to figure out what did the people at the time, which in this case is 1791, what did they understand those words to have meant? If it says 
the right to, of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You need to know what the right of the people to keep and bear arms, what those words meant to the people reading those words in 1791. That's the concept of original public meaning. Okay, so far so good. However, in 1791, the Bill of Rights was not intended to apply to state and local law. The Bill of Rights originally was a constraint on the federal government. Okay, so how did the Bill of Rights become a constraint on states? Well, it became, this is, this is what the McDonald case is all about, McDonald versus Chicago. The Bill of Rights, or most portions of the Bill of Rights, are understood to have been incorporated into the 14th Amendment. In other words, the 14th Amendment, one of the things it did is it made portions of the Bill of Rights applicable to state and local government. And so there is a theory out there, and, there's, and in, in Bruin, um, the court acknowledges that there's this, what, what it refers to as a scholarly debate, because there are a Law Review's article out there sort of arguing if the Second Amendment is only applicable to state and local law because of the 14th Amendment, don't we really care about the original public meaning, or rather the public meaning of the Second Amendment at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted? In other words, what, doesn't the, didn't, the 14th, didn't the Second Amendment take on whatever meaning was attributed to it in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted? And so there's this argument as to whether what we care about when we want to understand how to, to do the, the Second Amendment, because let me remind your listeners on what Bruin says. Bruin says that in order to determine whether a modern regulation is, uh, violates the Second Amendment, the first thing you do is you have to determine whether the conduct uh, of the individual falls within the plain text of the Second Amendment. And, and, and if it does, then the burden is on the state to justify the regulation by demonstrating that it's consistent with the historical tradition of firearms regulation. Ah. And so which historical tradition is it? Is it the historical tradition that was prevailing around 1791 in that time frame? Or is it the historical tradition that was prevailing around 1868 because perhaps we care about what people understood the right to keep bear arms to be at the time it was incorporated through, this, through the 14th Amendment. That's this scholarly debate that the court is talking about at the end of, at the end of Bruin. Um, and Justice, uh, and Justice uh, Barrett um, references that, that makes note of that in a concurring opinion. Um, and so uh, that, is, that is something that the court has not definitively ruled on. And the reason they say that they haven't definitively ruled on it is because it didn't matter in Heller and it didn't matter in Bruin because the historical tradition was the same both in the late 18th century at the time that the Second Amendment was adopted as it was around the time of the 14th Amendment. So they didn't have to decide it. And typically courts don't decide things they don't have to decide. They only decide things that are necessary to resolving the case. And since it wasn't necessary to resolve the case in Heller, and it wasn't necessary to resolve the case in Bruin, there's no definitive opinion on which, on whether, uh, on whether um, 
1868 counts or not. Now, that said, uh, the evidence and the, 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 the way the Supreme Court has actually done originalism, not just in the Second Amendment, but in other contexts as well, and how originalism actually works makes it pretty clear that the answer to the question is it's 1791, not 1868. So if push came to shove, 1868 should not be a time frame that can, that can by itself uh, get the state, get a state uh, where it needs to be to, to justify its law. Let me just tell you real quick why I think that's the case. And there's been some writing on this. Uh, Mark Smith has uh, some great articles on this. We actually cited uh, Mark's article in, um, in our briefing. Um, Steve uh, Halbrook has written on this as well. Um, but, but you know, the, the set, here's the sense of it, and this is sort of what we argued in our brief. First of all, if you read Bruin, if you read the section of Bruin that talks about the, this sort of debate between 1791 and 1868, it's pretty clear that the court has always focused on 1791. I mean, not just in the Second Amendment context, but in, in, the, in the context of other aspects of the Bill of Rights, they really focus on 1791. 1898 and, you know, the 19th century cases, they're really just corroborative. Um, and that's because that's what the court is doing. They start in the 18th century, and then they work their way over time to the, to the time of the 14th Amendment. But they always start around the time of the, of the founding, because that's, because that's what really counts. And so the fact that they end up in the mid-19th mid century all they're really doing is they're showing that the evidence from the 18th century at the time of the founding and the time of the Bill of Rights didn't change over time. And that as you make your way to the mid-19th century, the, the historical tradition is consistent. Wow. But they don't ever start there. And they don't ever rely solely on that, on that evidence. And in other contexts of the Bill of Rights, they're going to 1791 and the late 18th century. They're not going to... The 19th century evidence is their primary evidence. So, so just from that alone, and just from the explanation in Bruin, it's pretty clear that if push had come to shove, and when push does come to shove, it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court's going to say it's 1791, not 1868. Beautiful. Hey, but there's another important reason. But there's another yeah. important reason okay. why it should be 1791. So let's think about how originalism works. Right? I described it before, but let me get, let me reiterate. You care about the original public meaning, that is, the understanding that the public would have had in reading those words as to what they meant. Well, that's true today, but that's also true in 1868. In other words, if you're a judge in 1868 and you're trying to construe and interpret and apply the Second Amendment, what are you going to do? You're going to apply the original public meaning from 1791. So even in 1868, the understanding of the Second Amendment would be from 1791. So there shouldn't be a different understanding of the Second Amendment in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. The 1868 understanding should has to be the same as the 1791 understanding. So we're talking about one original public meaning. The original public meaning from 1791, that's the one that counts. So, so for everybody listening, I don't know. Can you hear Dan's passion in this right now? It's incredible. Holy moly, yeah. uh, Dan! We're gonna give you a second to breathe. I'm gonna do housekeeping, and then you're gonna tell us. You're gonna close the second half of the show. You're gonna tell us uh, what 
we can expect going forward and how positive you feel. Obviously, as a lawyer, you can't give us your, you know, the perfect answer. But, you know, I, I see the troops are so riled up by this and we're on a high. And everybody's been asking me for years how I can be so optimistic. And I'm like, what warrior ever goes into battle thinking they're going to lose? <laughs> right. right? Exactly. So one. we have to be optimistic. We have to think we're always going to win. But let me do some housekeeping real quick. So uh, obviously, Hartman Winicky is in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and Dan Schmutter is an attorney there, and they practice. How, what kind of law do you practice there, Dan? What What do you guys specialize in? We are a uh, we're a general pra- a small general practice firm. Uh, we represent individuals and small businesses and large businesses in a general commercial practice, but we do a lot of individual law, estate planning, estate administration, wills. Uh, we do contracts. We do all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a it's a nice sort of broad practice for individuals and businesses. So support those who support you. Hartman Winicky in Ridgewood, New Jersey. The next one, we got our guy Marty, Marty's V-Burger, martysvburger.com, whether you're in Manhattan or Long Island City in Queens, mention Gun for Hire, Gun for Hire Radio for a discount. If you live in New York, nytacdefense.com, nytacdefense.com. Peter Tillum mentioned Gun for Hire, Gun for Hire Radio, and you also get a 10% discount. If you live in New Jersey, U.S. Law Shield, use code Gun for Hire, one word for a 10% discount. It is not insurance. Insurance and training under the new law do not take effect until July, and Dan is going to talk about how we're going to be fighting that. But you want to have U.S. Law Shield because it's a legal defense fund. Decoding Firearms by John Petrolino is available at the Pro Shop here. Amazon and Kindle. Support those who support you. The Quarantine Crawl, over 370 pro 2A businesses, products, and services. We just picked up a new eye doctor as well, an ophthalmologist, I might add. And don't forget, we have other doctors on there as well as lawyers. Dan is on that Quarantine Crawl. Uh, the next thing is my doctor. Dan, pay attention to this because we need you around a long time. My doctor, Optimal Health Wellness NJ, Dr. Joe Sambatero, Concierge Medicine, Dan. For a few hundred bucks a month, you text him and you have access to a doctor 24-7. Your time is too valuable to be waiting in a doctor's office with, that's full of germs and stuff. Lake Island Rifle and Pistol Club in Carteret, New Jersey, L-A-K-E-I-S dot org. Looking for kids 12 to 18 years old to learn firearm safety and compete in small bore and air rifle competition. If you are in uh, Scotch Plains, check out Zen Float Center, zenfloatcenter.com. Sharon Decker will hook you up. If you're in Monmouth County, check out Aberdeen Guns. Ask for John at Aberdeen Guns. And he also has signed books uh, Crime Proof down there that you can purchase. Crimeproofbook.com, also available at Amazon, Kindle, and at the range. And if you want to donate for our veterans, Guiding Reigns, guidingreigns.com, G U I D I N G R E I N S dot dot org excuse me it's equine therapy you they really could use your help and make some donations i just want to start tell you our pistol competition start this tuesday at gun for hire and the first one is every tuesday night we have a one day pistol league each week is its own events we're alternating weeks of full size compact subcompact micro compact scores do not carry over what week to week it's one and done the course of fire is randomized each week the course of fire will will not be posted before the event you shoot 50 rounds per firearm your target is brought 
in and scored. And then we'll have raffle ticket drawings for all participants. And you can win an Anderson Arms AM15 for one buck. I'm telling you, we also have the 22 Fun League. You know, at Gun for Hire, we keep it real. So without further ado, back to Dan from Hartman Winnicky. So, Dan, tell us, forget about bump stocks, forget about others right now. Uh, an issue came out from the state police, forget uh, from the ATF, forget about the Second Circuit and what's going on. I want you to tell all of our listeners now, because everybody has been following you and following this, this case that's going on. What can we expect now? What is your gut feeling? Give us some hope because we've been beat up for 30 years. We got the win June 24th with the Bruin decision, and then we got the, the hammer on December 22nd with uh, Governor Snaggletooth and Danielson and Mom's Demand in every town. So we, we, need, we need something, Dan. Get us through uh, February, Dan. Talk to us, please. One of my uh, one of my favorite fictional attorneys, Lionel Hutz, famously said, "Mr. Simpson, the rules of the bar <laughs> prohibit me from promising you a large cash settlement, but between you and me, I promise you a large cash settlement." <laughs> I, I try love to it. Uh, try to avoid that if I can in my practice. Uh, yes. So, so I'm not going to make any promises as to no. what's going to happen in these cases. No. Um, you know, you've heard me say this. Um, many times. I, Bruin gives us fabulous tools to work with, um, and, and intentionally so. You know, as I said before, the court really wanted to clamp down on the abuse in the lower courts that had been going on for years since the McDonald case was decided in uh, in 2010. Bruin gives us a lot to work with, um, and we're seeing it work. All, everywhere. Um, not every case is going the way we would like it to go, but so many more than previously. Don't forget, we have, we have this is not the only case going on. We have the magazine case. Yeah, what's uh, going on with MAG and the assault weapon case? Just well, the magazine case is, as you know, the, the, as your listeners know, the magazine case is on uh, remand from the Supreme Court uh, to the Third Circuit, and then the Third Circuit, the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, sent it back to the District Court. So, um, and there are the assault firearm cases. There is uh, our case, uh, Elman versus Platkin. And then there's the FPC case, uh, Cheeseman versus Platkin. And uh, what the state is doing is they're sim with a similar strategy, although in, in, much stranger than what they tried to do here, they, are, they have moved to consolidate the two assault firearm cases, the Elman and Cheeseman cases, into the magazine case which is just grossly improper. Uh, aside from the fact that the subject matter is different, they're, they're procedurally in totally different places. The magazine case is four years, almost five years old at this point, um, and um, already has a fully a well-developed record, already has finding, critical findings of fact in our favor. For example, when it comes to equipment bans, whether it's firearms, whether it's magazines, whether it's anything else, the Supreme Court test that applies to those kinds of bans, um, it, it's often called the common use test. I, I prefer the phrase common possession test. But the test that the Supreme Court came up with in Heller is, uh, is uh, if, if, the, if the banned item is typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, 
it's protected. That's the end of the story. And so as far as we're concerned, we're done in the magazine case. That finding was already made. At trial in 2018, the court already found that magazines with a capacity of greater than 10 rounds are uh, typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for law-abiding individuals for lawful purposes. And so that should be the end of the case. Now, we believe that's also true for uh, so-called assault firearms, but we have to make that record. Um, and so the, case, the, so the, the cases are in different places. They're di procedurally in different places. So consolidating them would be completely inappropriate. So, so that's going to be heard by the court on January 21st. I'm sorry, January 25th is going to be argued. So we'll see what happens there. Um, if the district judge, uh, and again, that go, that can be decided by the judge in the magazine case for exactly the same reasons that we've already discussed. The magazine case is the older case. That judge gets to decide it, and he'll have to decide whether he's going to bring the two brand new assault weapon cases into the four and a half year old magazine, uh, mag or almost five year old magazine case. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Either way, we're going to be our our arguments are going to be the same. The question, you know, on the merits, the question is, are we going to have to contend with these other two cases that are going to, that will tag along with us uh, or not? Um, and we think they should not be, but we'll see what the judge ends up deciding. But all of these cases um, have, uh, have, we have very powerful tools at our disposal to advance these in the proper direction. And don't forget, we see... There are magazine cases elsewhere. There's the Duncan case in California. Um, there are assault weapon cases elsewhere. Um, there's actually some, several assault weapon cases now in Delaware. So this stuff is going to make it back to the Supreme Court one way or, not, one way or another. Um, we have two states and two different circuits um, uh, enacting these just, these just lunatic carry prohibitions. You know, New yep. York, what's going on in New York, what's going on in here. Those will make their way, in, you know, the New York cases are already on appeal. The New Jersey cases, well, I'm sure, will be on appeal fairly soon. Um, and we'll see what the Second Circuit does with the New York stuff. Fairly soon, the New Jersey says. stuff. Um, you know, and uh, the magazine cases are going to make their way back from multiple circuits. The assault firearm cases are going to make their way up there from multiple circuits. So, you know, th th this stuff is in play. Um, and it's in play in a context and in an environment which is vastly more conducive to victory. And so, you know, it's, it's a good time. It's a really good time to be litigating Second Amendment cases. It's a really good time to be vindicating Second Amendment rights. Vindicating. Uh, better than any time in history. You know, so, you know, you, got, you have to have a positive outlook. You have to feel yes. pretty good. But, but, but no, nobody, you know, people have to look at this on a macro level. You can't look, you can't focus on each individual Motion, each individual trial, each individual ruling, because there will be losses, and and you know you can't get down, you can't you can't look at a bad ruling, or a bad whatever, and say and say oh my God we're losing, because it's and I, I, Anthony you've heard me say this a hundred times it's a marathon not a sprint, we have to keep pushing forward, there will be losses but we keep pushing forward and eventually we will win, and that's the most important part. So, Dan, 
what's 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 the future with the Siegel case now enjoined with the uh, with the Coons case? What are, what are you looking for the judge to do now? What parts are you trying to get a, a TRO that we can start doing? Because there's only a few places we can carry right now because it was very limited right. under Coons. So what is your major like? What what is the tell us what what is the course of uh, that you're going to follow now? Like what can we start to expect? Well, I can I can answer that partially. I can't answer that completely. Okay. So it sounds I'm, it sounds like I'm hearing two different questions. So let me try to get them both. Um, I hear you asking me what's gonna, what's what's happening going forward procedurally, but I also hear you asking me what are we what relief are we seeking compared to the relief that the Coons plaintiffs have already gotten from them? Correct. So, so that's okay. it. So two part of question. Let, let me, that's what I need. Let me back, let me answer the second one first. So this, this might be helpful to people. Um, there is a, a when we first filed our motion um, in our case for a TRO and a preliminary injunction. It was a combined motion. We were asking for a TRO first and then and then a preliminary injunction because TROs are well the T stands for temporary. They're literally temporary because they can only they're only allowed to last for you know a few weeks that kind of thing. And so you have to move on to the preliminary injunction stage. And the idea behind the difference the main difference between a TRO and a preliminary injunction is a TRO is sort of a hair on fire kind of situation. You go and you say, Judge, this is an extreme emergency. We've got to get relief here. And it is sometimes decided on a much more limited record because it's done so quickly. In this case, actually, the record is pretty well developed, even though even for a TRO. But but by its, by its nature, it's temporary. So then you move on to a preliminary injunction, and sometimes you can develop more of a record in a preliminary injunction. Sometimes it's the same record. It, it really depends on the nature of the case. Um, but we decided that we wanted to, at the TRO stage, we wanted to keep it simpler and cleaner uh, because of the, of the speed at which we, want, we needed to move. And so what we did was, we, I made a chart. And for people who have access to the, well, actually, everybody has access to it because um, on the ANGRPC website, um, they have created a repository of the, the important papers in the Siegel case. And the document that you want to look at is my declaration from our original motion. So it's oh, actually I'm not even sure that I'm not sure that's on there. Uh, that may not be on there. So you may have to go to Court Listener, or you may have to go to uh, if it's been posted in Facebook. Um, but it's it's the, it's going to be the declaration of Daniel Schmutter, Exhibit B. I made a chart, and the chart shows exactly what we're asking for on our TRO motion, and then what we're asking for. Uh, afterwards on the preliminary injunction motion um, just to make it clear which motion is seeking what relief and what we're seeking on the TRO motion is only as to sensitive places we wanted to get in quick and fast and get the sensitive places knocked out and so okay. that so the very first round in our case is the sensitive places and we include the five sensitive places that the that this that the Coons plaintiffs have gone after plus a whole bunch of others so we're including uh, we're including parks. We're including you know parks, beaches, recreational facilities. We're including casinos. We're including airports, transportation hubs. We're including youth sporting events. So, so there's a whole series of other places that are not currently enjoined on the on the T restrained in the TRO that that's in the Coons case. Um, and you know our view, and this is what we told the court. Uh, our view is that Judge Bum's decision in Coons really disposes almost entirely of our request. I mean, she, she really can, there's not a lot of extra work to be done, in our view, to give us our TRO. She can Most just add those done, places. 
she just has to add those places. There's one or two arguments that have to be dealt with separately that are a little bit different, but it's, it's, it's like 98% done because almost everything that took place in Coons, almost all of the analysis that, that the judge did applies directly to our application. And so it's, you're, it's almost you know, it's like you're on the 10-yard line. <laughs> you know, so now you're, almost, the, you're almost there. If the so, judge rules in our favor, what can the state do at that point? If the judge issues TROs for those other things that we're asking for, what what can the state do at that point? Nothing. They have to wait until we go to full trial. How, like that's, no, no, that's, no, that, that, then the next step is the preliminary injunction. Preliminary injunction. So, so the, the, the TRO is temporary. It'll typically last you know a couple of weeks or however. And then the preliminary injunction is this is the injunctive relief we are asking for to last until the end of the case. So the preliminary injunction lasts from the preliminary injunction hearing until trial and then and so that that really that's the longer that's the that's the longer time frame it's the it's basically for the whole case gotcha. you know so the temporary the tro is temporary then you go to the preliminary injunction if you get a preliminary injunction that lasts through the end of the case what's the odds um, of us getting a preliminary injunction in your professional opinion well i think as i said um and again i I've long, I've long since given up trying to predict what judges are going to do. Sure, that's a sure. Errand. I, I, you know, young lawyers try to do that, and what you learn very quickly is you have absolutely no idea what the judges are going to do. Mm-hmm. You walk, out, you walk out of a hearing, it's like, oh, that went great, and you get your, you, you get your tushy handed to you. you know? <laughs> and it's like, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? It's because you're dealing with people. Judges are people. <laughs> that's why they're not, they're not, they're not Landrew. They're not robots. They're people. You know, and people do. What people do, you know, you can't, you know so so I, I got out of the prediction business a long time ago. Um, but you know, our our argument, as, as I said, our argument to Judge Williams, and I, I think that you know, there's there's some merit to this. The the nature of these cases, um, and and the sort of the way the record has developed, strongly suggests that what 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 has been ordered as a TRO is probably going to end up being ordered as a, as a preliminary injunction. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I mean, you know, uh, a couple of weeks from now, I could find out that they just, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And that wouldn't be the first time. But um, that's kind of, nothing important is going to be, I think, there's gonna, not going to be anything important that's different at the preliminary injunction stage, sufficiently important or sufficiently different that it's likely to result in a different decision. Again, I could be completely wrong about this. That's my sense of it, you know, if I, if mm-hmm. I were a betting man, which I'm not, you know. So, uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, it, it'll, it'll happen when it happens. The court will make its decision, and we'll see, you know, we'll see if anything important changed to, to change the result. Now, um, now you, no, you filed today. We don't have a TRO. Well, go ahead. You filed today for the TRO for our stuff, right? You asked the judge to... Well, no. We filed, to, we filed, we filed back on the 23rd of, of okay. December. But today, yeah. now, that we, now that the case, our case has been moved over to Judge Bum... This morning, we filed a letter with Judge Bum asking her urgently to have us to decide our motion. I mean, you know, we've been delayed now a week from where we were. I mean, as it is, we already had a, a, a slightly slower schedule. Um, you know, we were four days uh, behind the other case because of just the way the judges scheduled it. You know, it was, we filed at the same time, uh, just that Judge Bum scheduled on the 5th and Judge Williams scheduled on the 9th. So we were four days behind there. Now we're a week behind because uh, we were... You know, we uh, were supposed to be here on the 9th, then we were here on the 12th, and we still don't have a decision, so we really, really need to get in there. So we've, we wrote a letter to Judge, Judge Bob, we asked her to please get us in as soon as she possibly can. Um, you know, as far as we're concerned, it's fully briefed. 
there's in fact it's more than fully briefed there's all kinds of extra briefings so there's tons of paper available to the judge there's an entire transcript from yesterday's oral argument um and so you know uh uh and if she wants us in we said look if you need us in for oral argument we can come in at any time you know next week so whatever you need to do whatever you need from us you know please just have us in and and please make a decision so that's that's what we've asked for and hopefully there will be a way to do it hopefully she'll be able to get us in quickly and and if she doesn't need to have us in if she can just do it on the record that is in front of her great and hopefully she'll make a quick decision and hopefully we'll, we'll prevail that's what we're looking for sandy how are we doing with time we have uh, about uh, well, yeah, a few more minutes left. Dan, talk to us. What else? What else do you want to tell us? We, it's all it's all you because I just have to talk about some classes at the end. But it's so. What else? You got? It's all yours. Hit it. Well, um, you know the the. I, I think there's. Uh, I have to, I have to give a shout out to uh, Matt Carmel, um, a. Uh, board member of ANGRPC. At the very beginning of all this, back in June, or maybe July, Matt set up um, these Facebook groups for uh, for um, uh, carry permit issues. And he set up w one group for each county. And then he set up one for uh, state police, you know, people who uh, had to go through the state police. And then he set up one for um, people who are interested in non-resident permits out of state. And, you know, I, I, yep. at the time he did it, I thought it was a fantastic idea. I had no idea that it would turn into such an extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable clearinghouse of information. The participation of people and the kinds of information going back and forth and the ability to, uh, I mean, we, we, we used it to, to, to find plaintiffs for, for a case. Yep. I mean, we, we, we yep. were able to communicate with people in a way that, completely unprecedented way to find out what was going on and of course we used those Facebook groups um, uh, to help our uh, uh, the, our dealings you know HRBC strike force dealings with um, um, the uh, administrative office of the courts and the Attorney General's office you know um, as you know so much of what HRPC does is behind the scenes is not public there's a lot of conversations we have um, the exchange of information. Uh, we submit letters that are, you know, sort of just, just, just trying to get, trying to get information to the people that can make a difference. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, the litigation is extremely public. The litigation is only part of it. There's so much, not, there's so much that isn't litigation that gets things done. And these Facebook groups were so valuable in collecting yep. information, requesting information, disseminating information. Um, just incredibly, what a so so Matt really deserves uh, enormous kudos for having come up with that idea. I mean, he it does was brilliant. He it does. really made a difference. I mean, and it really made a difference. So, still making so, a difference, but I mean, you know, he is. Thank you, Matt Carmel. Also, uh, Dan, a question we get all the time is, when is the NRA and ANGRPC going to do something for us in New Jersey, Dan? <laughs> That's the other question. Oh Don't you love when people say that? Doesn't it drive you crazy? It's just like, it's I also just, want to shout out on Twitter, Mister 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 Brian Summers for his taser face memes. I just want to shout him out. Go ahead, Dan. Back <laughs> to you. My yeah, you know when I see when I see people say that stuff, they post that stuff. I think my first thought is like, you are not paying attention. You are just not. No, paying you're attention. definitely not. And it's like no, what? You're not paying attention. <laughs> Where have you been? You know, so I don't know. It's look. It, it, some of it is a lot of it's just trolling, intentional trolling. You know. Um, uh, you, you know, you, somebody says something like that, and then you, 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 
you do a laundry list of like 48 things that NRA and ANGRPC are doing, and then they, they just say, oh, yeah, prove it. <laughs> I want to tell you how this, how this, I want to explain how this week works. So Dan had to get something to the courts by eight o'clock, I think on Wednesday night or something. It was Wednesday night. So I call Scott Buck up and I'm like, how's everything going? And Scott is crunching. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm stress eating. I said, why are you stress eating, Scott? He goes, because Dan is at the hospital. His daughter got a concussion. She was hit in the head and, and she's at the hospital and everything. So I'm like, uh, I'm like, so you know me, I'm a joker. First thing I'm like, is his daughter okay? He goes, yeah, I think she's going to be okay. I said, how selfish of Dan to have a medical emergency <laughs> with his daughter when we have this lawsuit going on. And Scott's like, no comment. You know, he's such a lawyer, no comment. So then the next question I, I said was, I said, does Dan have his laptop? Scott said, yeah. I said, Scott, we're going to be okay. If Dan has his laptop, we're going to be okay. But meanwhile, all I hear on the other side, all I hear on the other side, Dan, is <laughs> Scott, I don't know what he was eating, but he was, oh he was stress eating. Go ahead. Oh my God! It's, I had I had my laptop and my and my iPad at St. Barnabas emergency room. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, was think, ridiculous. No, just think of I'm that. Right? Around, I'm walking around. I got the I got one thing in one hand, one thing in the other hand. The, <laughs> there's the, there's the, the nurse, the triage nurse, and then the, the, the PA comes in, and they're doing. And I'm like, I got my devices. It's Wait a minute! I'm, I'm in the middle of a thought. I'm looking yeah. for places to plug in. <laughs> it's ridiculous! Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> but as long as as long as your daughter is okay, yeah, and she, as long as we um, got that victory, she, yeah, we're, she's, she's we're recovering fine. nicely. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you because you did, you did reach out to me multiple times. And I do appreciate that. Very and much. the good part is the yeah, emergency is, room physician yeah. knows what seventeen ninety one means. Yes, I man. I always, I always manage when I text Dan. It was always, "How's your daughter first, and did you make the deadline second? I didn't do it the other way around. That's, a, that's kind of unusual, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, I, I got to tell you something. I, 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 I read all the briefs and I read everything that went on in court, and uh, you know, you're on your feet and you're you're just spewing everything out. And, you know, the, the state did their best, but, you know, they don't have a lot to go on other than emotion. And uh, you you just killed it. And we owe you an, an invaluable debt of gratitude. I mean, we, you and I, we've been our paths have been crossing and working together for so many years. And we've been through so much together, personally and professionally, both of us. Right. You think about what's happened to both of us personally over the years and everything. And you just you just killed it, you know, and having David Jensen with Coons over there, who's another person I know since he went before Judge Walls. Remember that like 10, 12 years ago? Yeah. Right. Remember, Re remember, remember that, Dan? I do. I do. Remember do you remember? That. Yeah. I mean, that's like 12 years ago. And David Jensen and I have hooked up many a times, you know, uh, and then and then just to have you now with the Siegel case and the two cases together. I just have such a good feeling, just like I felt June 24th when the Bruin decision came down. And then I started to get down in December. Um, I'm, I'm feeling positive again. And we have no there's no better team to have behind us. And, you know, we have the FPC, FAS, NJ2S, CNJFO over here with that case and then we have NRA and ANGRPC over here with you with this case with Scott it's just we have dream teams across the board and uh, we're we're going to be the ones you know the second circuit now is delayed until March with uh, what's going on over there with the Antioch case and everything uh, I, I just have this great feeling and I know I'm not a lawyer and I can't talk the way you talk but 
I just want to thank you and everybody out there in the community, all the 2A heavy lifters and the small Second Amendment army that we've been amassing now. And you see it. You see the comments you're getting out there on social media now. So uh, it's phenomenal, right? I, I, I appreciate that very much, Anthony. Thank you. And, and like at the risk of uh, paraphrasing hair club for men, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not just ANGRPC's lawyer. I'm also a customer, <laughs> you know, so I, 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 live, I live through all the same stuff. I live through all the That's same scary. stuff that the members and all the gun owners in New Jersey who have to deal with this crap. I live through all the same stuff that they do, so I, it's personal to me. It's not just my job. It's personal to me, you know. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I th look, thanks. for. I, I appreciate everybody's kind words. Uh, there's been a lot of really nice things that people have been saying. Um, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to do this. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of lawyers, a lot of lawyers practice, and the stuff they do is tedious, boring, and like, and they hate it. Um, I love this stuff. This is the best stuff you can do as a lawyer. Well, you'd never it's tell. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It shows. Your passion shows. And on that point, and I'm going to start wrapping it up now. So Dan Schmutter's firm is Hartman, Winnicky in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Go and check them out. Support those who support you. Any type of will, any type of personal stuff that you need, please, you know, give a shout out and say that I'm here. I'm inquiring. I want to hire this firm because of Dan Schmutter and his uh, Herculean efforts that we've been going through. So please support those who support you. All of you continue to donate to the 2A uh, families, which I've listed 10,000 times here, Ad Noisium. You know who they are. And, uh, again, we have use of forces classes here that we teach in, in person by PTC certified instructors. We're still doing the quals. The only thing different is now you need four references, which we have the forms here, and it's $200 application fee for now. That's the only thing that's changed. Come in qualify do your use of force uh there's you know the state police uh, excuse me the governor the new law you, it says you can carry any gun you want speaking to uh, criminal defense attorneys they would thank you if you qualify with every gun you're going to carry even if you just keep that qualification form in your folder it's a good way to cover your ass we teach cpr aed here hemorrhage control we sell all of that stuff here um at the range so if you want to come down uh firematic in garfield was the company I was looking for last week. We're selling their fire extinguishers. Dan, where do you come into the store? Where do you see all the safety products and everything we have now since the last time you came? We have over 2,000 guns in stock. We have everything that you can imagine here from tourniquets to fire blankets to fire extinguishers. You name it, we have it, man. That's great. I can't wait to get back in there. You know, I'm actually I'm actually not sure why I haven't been there for a while. It's not like anything's been going on. So yes, no, you've been very busy. <laughs> yeah, you would. Off. I would have thrown you out if you came in. You're not allowed. I would have told you get your laptop and your iPad and go in my office and get to work. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you would, guys. Of I know that. Yes. yes, Dan. You want to close it? Do um, you have anything you want to say? Uh, no. Wait, I a lawyer, a lawyer, a, speechless. A lawyer, speechless. <laughs> yeah. Just, I, I, ladies I, and I gentlemen, you have witnessed this for the first time. Ripley's, believe it or not, we need to contact you. <laughs> he seems so elated, doesn't he? Does. he? I know. Yeah, he's so depressed about this All right, whole Dan, thing. Dan, save the closing for the lawyer for when you go to court. Right. Uh, Sandy, close it for him. Well, first, I want to just thank everyone who's been donating to Guiding Reigns. Uh, we really, really do appreciate your uh, donations, especially the actor Richard Kind for your wonderful donation. Very generous. Thank you so much. 
Um, also, a good man. Uh, a very good man. And listen, uh, these vets needed. It is the most amazing program. It is. It far surpasses anything I've ever seen as far as being effective for them. And it's not just petting horses or going for horseback riding. It is just incredible. You really have to see it. Hopefully, we'll have some um, some of the spokespeople on from uh, Guiding Reins in, in sometime in the near future. And it looks like you've done it again. You've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gun for Hire Radio. Gun for Hire Radio is a kinetic media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. On behalf of our show host, Master Trainer Anthony Calandro, author of Crime Proof, Think Like a Criminal, and Beat Them at Their Own Game, available wherever great books are sold, and at the gun shop, bookshop, gun range, also known as Gun for Hire. You may even meet the author himself, and he might sign, if he's in a good mood, your book. Dan, thank you so much for everything that you do. It's always a pleasure and a wonderful break to have you on the show this way it's you between me and him yes <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> thank we you for you everything guys. uh from the shadows of the new york city skyline and the beautiful foothills of the carolinas god willing jesus tires and the batteries hold out we will see you again next week and i'm on the carolina